Real interfaith relations is about action. It's about doing something. From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch in New York City. And talking is important, don't get me wrong. But if it stops at talking, nothing happens. On the week of August 14th, thousands gathered in Chicago, Illinois, for the Parliament of the World's Religions. Faith and secular leaders from around the globe joined to amplify the theme of this year's convening, a call to conscience, defending freedom and human rights. This week on State of Belief, I want to share some of the conversations I was able to have with notable attendees. Longtime friends and new friends alike. Thank you for listening to State of Belief. To get these important conversations in front of more people who need to hear them, we've partnered with Religion News Service, the leading religion journalism organization in the country. And as part of the RNS family of podcasts, there is a next generation podcast I want to make sure you're subscribed to. The podcast feed you are listening to right now will be discontinued soon. Please be sure to subscribe to The State of Belief at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform or at stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. State of Belief is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation, thank you for helping get these conversations heard by more people who need them. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join us at interfaithalliance.org. And now to my first guest. Cardinal Supich, thank you so much for being with us here on State of Belief. So we are at the Parliament of the World's Religions. And if you could have your prayer answered... After this parliament ends, what would the world look like and uh, what would happen after people leave here and go back to their respective communities? Well, my hope would be that the entire world would see that our gathering uh, is a model for how we should deal with diversity and difference in the world. So often uh, the discussions become so very polarizing where we stop listening to one another simply because we've made judgments already about other people and their positions. So hopefully this will be a, a great symbol to the world of what can be done when people do sit down and dialogue with one another and listen to each other with great respect. Uh, that's what this uh, assembly is about, making sure that we have um, uh, an appeal to people's conscience that uh, we need to learn by learning together and listening to each other. So uh, that would be my hope and aspiration. And can you explain to the listeners um, kind of the Catholic theology of interfaith work and what guides it and keeps it as a North Star well, it, I think it's anchored uh, in the creation scene uh, from the very beginning of the Genesis account where God uh, created uh, humanity uh, to be in God's image and likeness. And so that uh, there is an understanding in the Catholic faith that God is one, is united. There is a unity there. So humanity as well needs to aspire to that kind of unity and uh, realize that God uh, sent his son into the world, uh, according to our Christian theology, uh, to save everyone, to save uh, the whole, all of humanity. And uh, that is why I think Pope Francis uh, is, is time and again reminding us that 
uh, we have to uh, keep in mind uh, that everyone uh, needs to be included uh, in God's plan of salvation. And uh, that is really uh, an aspiration that we have in the Catholic faith, that the Lord, uh, the Lord is the Lord of life for all of us. And uh, we can begin by working together to discover how to complete that plan. That is absolutely beautiful. Um, right now, there is so much division. I mean, you work in the American setting um, within the Catholic Church, but more broadly within the American populace, there is a great deal of division. What what gives you hope when you think about the future of our country and and how we can continue to nurture our democracy, nurture a community where all people can be heard and all people could be together? I think by the very fact that we're identifying this as a problem is an important uh, insight. And whenever I go, I, I hear people tell me that they're tired of the polarization and the division. But I guess the real uh, sign of hope for me is my dialogue and interaction with young people. Uh, they, uh, in fact, sometimes turn away from religious organizations because they see them as a place where polarization takes place and don't want anything to do with a group of people who, in fact, add to the polarization. My hope would be that all all faiths, and especially the faith of the Catholic Church here in Chicago that I'm responsible for, would always make sure that we send the message to young people that uh, we don't want any part of that polarization and uh, that uh, we, we do need the hope and, and aspirations of young people today to be a part of uh, changing uh, the, the culture that we have today that's filled with polarization. So that's where my hope is, that the young people today are going to teach us a lot about unity and the importance of working together. I, it's amazing. I ask about hope with almost all of the people I interview, and everybody is actually hopeful about young people, which is counter narrative. A lot of like, it's oh, young people. When will they learn? But actually, young people are doing amazing work out there, and I, I, I really appreciate you pointing that out. One of the phenomenons that a lot of us see out there is a kind of blending of nationalism with the Christian faith, which can lead to some people outside of the Christian identity, and even some of us within the Christian identity to feel like we're relegated to a secondary class status unless we adhere to particular beliefs. Um, some of us call this Christian nationalism. Is that something that you think about? How do you think about that phenomenon of the blending of flag with faith? I think it's injurious to both because uh, what it does, unfortunately, is um, shrink the, uh, the mission of both uh, state and religion and faith, uh, because uh, no faith can be in any way summarized by any national politic. At the same time, there are aspects of a national politics that do have to uh, deal with specific concerns of governance of the people, of laws, and, and social order. Uh, the, uh, the, the different faith traditions can, in fact, be a source of, of, of helping them understand uh, their role, but cannot in any way replace it. So I, I think that there is an importance uh, of how uh, they don't, they're not totally separate in the sense that they don't have a dialogue with each other, but they do have their own realms and they bring their own perspective that has to be respected uh, as we go forward. Uh, so I think any, any melding of the two uh, is, both injuri is injurious to both the state and also faith. A lot of us are 
approaching this next election with fear and you know trepidation um this is actually not a partisan question it's almost a pastoral question uh what what words would you give to the citizenry of america regardless of faith tradition and how to approach this next election which feels very volatile right now well, I think, uh, first of all, let's admit we live in a democracy, so we get the people that, in fact, are elected. We, we, we're the ones who put them in office, so there is a responsibility. The second thing is I would encourage people to get involved in the process, not only in terms of voting, but informing themselves. We have to make sure that we, we understand that just because some information is out there, it doesn't mean that it's necessarily true. Sometimes we forget that there's a difference between the plethora of information that comes to us and real truth, and we have to make sure that we, we dig down and find out what, what is really true, rather than being uh, uh, hit by a tsunami of all sorts of information from blog posts and social media that is trying to shape public opinion, uh, but in fact many times ignores the truth. So people have to look for where the truth lies. Yeah, thank you so much. I mean, this disinformation is incredible. Cardinal Supich, thank you so much for speaking with us today on State of Belief. Well, thank you, and greetings to all of your listeners, and uh, uh, let's work together to make sure that uh, we bring peace about in the world, and also uh, to, uh, to create a, a culture of real harmony among ourselves. We're just getting started with this week's show. There are more conversations from the Parliament of the World's Religions in Chicago coming right up. You're listening to State of Belief, brought to you by Interfaith Alliance. My name is Soraya Dean. I, uh, I represent the Omnia Institute for Contextual Leadership. I'm also reading for my public leadership credentials at Harvard with Marshall Gans, uh, who worked deeply with the Farm Workers Union. So we are all for the power of the people. Leadership is not about one charismatic leader standing up and proclaiming victory. Leadership for me is really enabling other women. It's about feeling the, the crisis, the situations, the challenges women are facing everywhere in the world and standing up to them. Audrey Lord says, uh, another woman's struggle is not necessarily my struggle, but until that woman is free, I am not free. So what we do is we go into communities, we, 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 we scout leaders, not just who are interested, but who are committed. And we, we tell them, we teach them how to build power. Power is organized people. Yeah. Power is organized money. And, and talk to me uh, about the the religious aspect of this, because in religious communities, as we you know, as you know, often it's men who are in control. How does organizing on the ground with women help transform religious communities in a positive way? Yes. Yeah, so to begin with, this is a very volatile uh, space to be in, because men consider any review of what is happening as an attack on not only on them but on the religion so the polarity of the conversation is very situational and it's very specific to a certain country so it is not a one one cap fits all so we go we ask the women what do you want if you feel you're impoverished if you feel you're subordinated we tell them raise your voice because dr king reminds us nobody can ride your back unless you bend it so how, how far are you bending it? It's time to straighten up. And when you straighten up, straighten up with another group of women. 
tell me about the organization. There's like a philosophy and, and a way of doing this organizing that you've learned that is that is really effective and specific. What's the organization that you affiliate with? Yeah, so I am affiliated with the Omnia Institute of Contextual Leadership, where we build grassroots movements. And I also am the founder of the Muslim Women Speakers Movement. For a long time, we have been trying to raise our voice. And what we realize is that women lack power. Women lack organizing skills. So typically, we would go into a community. I remember so well going into a community in Bangladesh where we saw uh, some uh, young girls, 14, 15 years, subjected to child marriage. Uh, so we brought the mothers and the children and the young girls and we brought some men in the community and we, we, we questioned them whether they want this to happen and why this was happening. And then from there we go into finding common solutions because in the process we need everybody. We need, we need all hands on the deck. So, so not being antagonistic and not polarizing the, the communities further is foundational to what we do. But our primary goal is to build, enable people to build power. And that is we recommend highly to do one-on-ones. Find out. Now, Paul, you and I, we know we will get up at 4 p.m. for this cause of justice for women or men of faith. So who are your buddies really, you know, who have the same passion and have the same drive? This is critical. And, and we are at the parliament. I want to tell you this story. Swami Vivekananda was uh, scoffed and he was asked, what are you talking about? Peace. There cannot be world peace because there's too much division. And the Swami said, give me 100 committed people. I don't want the 5,000 who are showing up today. Mm. What is important for us at Omnia and for me personally is what are you going to do when you go home? Mm. Yes. Mm. Do you have an organizing statement? Do you know what the issues are? Do you know who your people? So in the world of organizing, we are, the first question we ask is who are my people? Not what is the issue? You know this, Paul. Yes. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. This is wonderful. And how can how would you you know you're, you you just mentioned it and, and we, we the same thing with Interfaith Alliance where we go we we are support local communities to figure out like to, to help them organize and it's a, it's not exactly the same but the idea of building power in the face because there is power out there that is trying to you know, exert itself and is doing that very well and it will only be met with with power. And the power of invitation. I love that you, the way you're, you're saying that. What are what's a, what's what's one way? First of all, that people could support your organization, and then what would be another thing that they can do? Our listeners, wherever they are, uh, to support the ideas behind your work. Okay. So typically, gather the people. We'll teach you how to gather. Invite us, and we'll help you transform your community. Mm, beautiful. My name is Shanta Premavardhana. I am uh, president of Omnia Institute for Contextual Leadership. Now, we have spoken to Soraya, who is one of the people who has learned and working with you. Tell us more about your institute and, and how it got founded and what's its purpose. Let me begin in 1976. It, uh, the institution began there as an institution of Christian seminaries, a consortium of Christian seminaries, 12 of them who came together to do something different than what what seminaries usually do. Here's how I would describe it. Seminaries need to teach what we call received theologies. That is, 
theologies that were received from centuries ago. Great, wonderful theologians who used to live in those times. But they are not necessarily applicable to today's world and to the concerns and the issues that we deal with today. They were children of their context and they spoke to the questions of their context. What we have said, we said to the seminaries is that we need to get your students to do what we call contextual theology. What that means is that the question for theology begins at the context, at the ground level. So when we get the students, we put them out onto the streets of Chicago and said even in the mid dead of winter <laughs> we put them out in the streets of chicago and say go talk to people find out what they are dealing with what are their concerns what are their their struggles what are their joys even and out of those questions arises a new theology right in other words if seminaries were teaching or we, if you go to seminary to learn a theology here we would build a theology. Well, you know, it's. I know you're acquainted with my great-grandfather's work, Walter Rauschenbusch. His theology came about because of his experience in Hell's Kitchen. You know, and so he, you know, he went there and he was, you know, he, he even said, this is a quote, like, I went there to save souls in a traditional way. And his congregation taught him a new way to look at the Bible, a new way to understand Christian um, Christian understanding. And so, you know, he totally credit. In fact, he dedicates his first book to his congregation that opened his eyes to see what was actually in the Bible in a way he hadn't been able to yes. fully see yes. until it was contextual. So in some ways, it's almost a, a blending of pastoral and theology because you, you, you come at it because you're caring for people, you're loving exactly. them. Exactly. And, and then you, you know, theology arises out of that rather than some sort of abstract thing that you're imp- imposing on your so so and this you know this is something that may have started in the united me, states yeah, but now make, it's really around the world let me let me make a, a point about your grandfather he's one of my heroes not because of the content of his teaching as much but because of the process because of the method and what we have to do with any of these great theologians is not so much the content but how did they do their theology and that's what we need to emulate today yeah. It's uh, this, the, you know, in seminary where, and when I was in seminary, even just learning, you know, the, the idea of, um, of praxis and then reflection and practice and reflection and, and this, you know, this, and I think that that's, that's, you know, it's valuable for seminarians, but it's valuable for all of us. The, the idea of having a, um, an organic growing theology that is able to grow and change and adapt with new situations. So um, I think, you know, I think that this is all incredible. And what it leads to is a kind of very relevant Theology, yeah. And I mean, that's like, you know, pressing in on yeah. what is happening. Yeah. And so talk to me a little bit about that, um, that work. So um, what happened here, just going back to another point that you made, the, the, the primary um, motivator of our work is Paulo Freire. Yes. 1968, he wrote a book called, uh, Brazilian Educator, wrote a book called Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And that's where you go into the context so you can provide conscientization, as he called it, <laughs> making people conscious of where their oppression is coming from so that they will be educated for liberation. That's the point. So 
uh, let me let me just respond to that because what I you know I did my thesis on this work and and at the same time that Freire was doing his work. Augusto Boal, also Bra- Brazilian, was doing theater, uh, theater of liberation, and then you have James Cone doing theology of liberation, and so it was like this three ha- things happening in different places. It was almost—it's like it's you know, if you were going to be religious about it, an eruption of the spirit uh, of like awareness and cognizance. It's very—it was—it's stunning. 1968 is a very memorable year for a variety of reasons, but just think about that. That's yeah. when all of that happened. Uh, okay, so anyway, back in uh, 2013, 2014, we began a revisioning process. And in that revisioning, we asked two questions. I come from uh, with expertise in interfaith dialogue because that's my uh, education. That's my PhD in religion. We, well, we should also mention you, you have been active in, you know, before this position, you were an incredible leader in the Christian church. It's worth, like, you know, stating that, like, even at the World Council of Churches, right? I mean, you, you, you say a little bit about that background before we get into, like, where, where you went. Okay, just so, so uh, one prior to that, I pastored a church in Chicago, in Hyde Park. During that time, I learned what we call community organizing. South side of Chicago... I like to say I was a community organizer in the south side of Chicago before it was fashionable to say so. (laughs) But Barack Obama and I were in the same organization. He was a little bit senior to me in that. But I knew him quite well back then, not anymore. (laughs) But anyway, um, so I went from there to the National Council of Churches. I was the Associate General Secretary for Interreligious Dialogue there. And then from there to the World Council of Churches, I did the same thing, directed the program on interreligious dialogue. And uh, as a result of that, I came to know religious leaders around the world, the senior religious leaders. Here's what happened. When we began the work of revisioning the organization, my board said to me, you bring two important distinctive gifts. One is your expertise in interreligious dialogue. The other is your international relations. We need to do bring those two together for our new vision. And so we said, let's talk about what is most needed in the interreligious arena today. And I said, I'm not going to do the same kinds of things that I've done before because they don't really make a difference for a lot of people. Let's ask the question, what is most needed? What is the most challenging in the interreligious arena? And we agreed that religious extremism is the most challenging. And in that conversation was a Nigerian gentleman who was on our faculty, and he said to me, said to us, I, can, I know where you can go to do, do this. And so we shifted our approach from a Chicago-based, Christian, seminary-oriented organization to a global, religious-leader-oriented religious uh, organization and an interfaith organization. And that shift took a lot out of us, but that shift is what got us out to Nigeria and to other countries. So we are, uh, we've been in Gombe State in the northeast of Nigeria, where Boko Haram has been active, and bringing Muslim and Christian leaders together, because our theory is that Boko Haram comes into a community and recruits young people because um, there's a gap that exists between Christians and Muslims. It is to that gap that they come. So if you close the gap, then the space for recruitment decreases. 
So what we've done is we've told Christians and Muslims, uh, imams and pastors and other religious leaders come together and we created interfaith peacemaker teams, groups of about 20 in a local community and that they would, they would uh, do uh, one-on-one conversations with their neighbors to understand what's really going on, what the real concerns are, and build power by, by doing that as they build power, and this is the community organizing part of it, um, as they build power, they are able to understand what are the issues, how do you cut an issue that is narrow, that is urgent, relevant, and winnable, mm. and use those in order to win something and gain more power. I love it. That is like, you know, we, we do, um, you know, not quite at the same grassroots level, but, you know, at, in communities around the country, yeah. we ask the same thing. We interfaith advocacy training is like really bring people together. What are the pressing issues? Right. What can you agree on that you want to work on? Right. How do you get from here to there? Right. I mean, it's really extraordinary. So let me, um, let me close by just asking you, like, if you had one thing that you would wish that everyone at this parliament would realize... <laughs> <laughs> One thing that they would be made aware of uh, as a result of being here, what would it be? I think people need to know that uh, real interfaith relations is about action. It's about doing something. See, we come to these parliaments and we talk. And the word dialogue doesn't help us because it help, it makes us think that it is about talking. And talking is important, don't get me wrong. But if it stops at talking, nothing happens. Here's a good example. When uh, the mayor of Chicago came and spoke to us on the first day in his welcome address, he said something that startled me a bit. This is a new mayor. Okay, I like this guy. I, I hope the best for him. He's a very good man. <laughs> okay. So I don't want anybody to get this wrong. But he said to us, See, you are here to bring justice. You are here. He got very passionate about this. Yeah, he said, you got edu- we need education justice. We need transportation justice. We need health care justice. You know, it went on with that litany. I'm sitting there thinking, this is why we elected you. <laughs> we elected you to bring justice. And because you are the one who can do it, because you have control of the budgets, you are the one who can implement the programs. Our job is to keep you accountable to that promise. Don't tell us to do justice. You do it, and we'll hold your feet to the fire. That I think that's a really important question. You know, like what is what are the what are these different roles? Because it's not you know we don't have the budgets, right? But we do. We can raise the moral imperative, yes. And we can organize power and people exactly. to to be behind it. Yeah. But you're so but at right. The end yeah. Of the day, it's it it's has. A, to, it's, it's the, the government who control the power. It's the yeah. government who can do that. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, <laughs> so. Um, the, the, the problem is, of course, everybody claps now, you know, I mean, for that kind of statement. We are all excited about it. That's the problem in my mind, because we think that our job is to do the small things like, you know, OK, so let's help the poor. Let's let's do a, create a homeless shelter. Right. All of those things are important. But the but but the nonprofit world cannot address, does not have the resources to address the enormous problems that we have that the government is the only source that can address those. And so government passes on to the non-profit sector 
and non-profit sector can do little bits here and there and it is broken up all over the place and a lot of us religious leaders sit here and think if we sit come to a conference and talk and go that's enough that is not going to do it <laughs> yeah, i think that's i think that's super important and it, it's interesting because it is like you know this this question of um you know we think a lot about and i know you do like what's the role of religion in democracy and it's not to take away the power of the state. It's yeah. not to, you know, it's yeah. not to have the state or the government export all the things that have to do with good, doing good for the people. Because actually government should be for the right. people, by the right. people. Right. Um, uh, but it is, we do have a vision. And we can, if we have a shared vision, a shared power, um, and, and government can help implement that vision, then that can be very beautiful. So that's so important. This is the first of many conversations, Shanta, that we're going to have. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you so much for being on State of I'm very glad. I'm very glad. I'm a fan of Interfaith Alliance, so I'm, I'm glad to do this. We'll be back with more conversations from Chicago recorded at the Parliament of the World's Religions. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of State of Belief anytime on our website at stateofbelief.com. You're listening to State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. All right, we are here with Wendy Goldberg from the Tri-Faith Initiative, which is an incredible organization in Omaha, Nebraska. Wendy, welcome to State of Belief. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, so tell us what the uh, Tri-Faith Initiative is. Um, so our initiative grew out of 9-11, a response where in Omaha, Nebraska, a couple of people of faith showed up at a mosque to say no harm should come to this mosque because of um, acts that happened from other people who use the same vocabulary. And from there, some potlucks and picnics happened, and then the Reformed Jewish community, Temple Israel Synagogue, was looking for a new home. The, the Reformed congregation was established in Omaha in 1871. So we have a really long history of being wow. in relationship with the religious other. We actually have documentation of being in relationship with Standing Bear. Oh, wow. Um, and so this is not new that the Reformed Jewish congregation would come to say, we want to build a neighborhood. We want to know um, who our neighbors would be in a new location for our congregation. So we invited some of the Muslim community to look for land with us. And if some Jews and Muslims are going to get together, we probably should invite some Christians. We went to the archdiocese first, and it ended up that that wasn't the right project for them. The Episcopal Diocese walked with us on the journey for nine years, and ultimately uh, United Church of Christ congregation joined us. And in um, we purchased land that was previously a country club exclusively for Jews that the business model failed. And that uh, I, I should mention that it was a country club for Jews because Jews were not allowed in other country clubs. Exactly. You know, so so there was a history, interestingly, of religion, religious exclusion and inclusion kind of in the in the land in a way. A hundred percent. And so uh, we were able to purchase land when this uh, land went for sale, 38 acres, four uh, parcels, and it was a, it's a project in autonomy. These four congregate, three congregations and an interfaith organization that has now become the Tri-Faith Initiative each pr- purchased a parcel of land that is adjacent to each other, each fundraised their own money, um, ending in $70 million dollars. 
What's really interesting about everybody fundraising their own money is that they had to invest. It wasn't just like, here, here's something given to you, like try to make it work. We're going to invest actually money from our community and we're going to, we're going to do this for ourselves because we see the worth in it. Right. And so a, a part of that that's interesting to me is we built bricks and mortar. We raised money. But what we really built was trust. So we met once a month and said to each other, how might we support each other in our independent need to sustain a congregation independent of this project, right? What I need in partners from Temple Israel, Countryside Community Church, and the American Muslim Institute is a vibrant congregation, right? And fast forward, we were able to raise the money, build the buildings, but who could have known 20 years ago that we would be facing a rise of religious nationalism, that our collective would address some needs in a shifting religious landscape that my children are not affiliated with a congregation. Many kids aren't, but they're really inspired by this idea of collaborative model where we not just stand around a bridge and hold hands and say, kumbaya, we're all Abrahamic, we love each other. We're taking it even further to say what we value is our unique differences and that we want to build a world that has space for us to be different and that religious pluralism can thrive. Apparently, there is a, uh, a creek or a river that runs through the property that has been, for ages, been called Hell Creek. Uh, so so how, how does that factor into a river running through that is called Hell Creek in a, uh, in a community of different faith traditions that, frankly, in times uh, in the past and even present, are you know, at war and, and you know, spilling blood? There's a, I think it's very interesting that there's a Hell Creek. So what is, how does that factor into the, the, the narrative that you tell about Tri-Faith Initiative? So that, that hell um, is the darkness. It is the life that we are part of, that we are um, sometimes seeing and sometimes choosing not to see in each other, in our systems, in our history. And I think that the role of the Tri-Faith Initiative is to model, to be a beacon of hope, um, not only in what is beautiful about our world, but what is not working and why, why the religious voice, an interfaith voice, an interreligious voice that can come and hear each other's narratives to appreciate um, that we have different beliefs and different ways of behaving, but we all aim to belong. And all of this is also happening at a time where religious identity is becoming, right? How we are shifting and changing. I grew up as a in the conservative denomination of Judaism, but I practice now in the reformed denomination. I meet people every single day who say they were cradle Catholics or, you know, what we're, we're shifting. We're, we're coming to find our communities of meaning sometimes at work, not in a community of faith. And how might we, in our collaborative model of the Tri-Faith Initiative, take those examples of hell and translate them into our lives every day? That if people only go to their faith institution an hour or three a week, 
where do we meet them in school, in healthcare, in higher education? Um, those are the places that we need to bridge these divides that are really tearing the social fabric of our community in Omaha, Nebraska, in Nebraska, in the heartland. Um, and I, I think we have a, a really important work to do. So you're here at the Parlor of the World Religions uh, in Chicago. What do you hope that people will learn from the model of the Tri-Faith Initiative? And also, um, what are you listening for uh, as, um, as you spend the next four days here at the Parliament? So I'm, I'm hoping that um, from witnessing the lessons that we have gained in our experiment, in, in our Petri dish in Omaha, Nebraska, that people will honor autonomy that people will be brave and curious about the religious other, um, and that people will think differently about religious identity, that there's no one person who speaks on behalf of any one religious tradition, um, and that sometimes the hard work is within our religious traditions, the intra-work within the Christian community, with what, who, who gets to define Christianity. Who gets? I, I think that's really in question right this minute. Who gets to have the word? Um, are those gendered issues? Are those issues of uh, sexual orientation? Are those the things that are going to pull us apart? Or are we actually going to stand up uh, and learn how to listen to each other and be at the table together and disagree with respect? And this is like the big issue. And you know, we we of course, uh, you know, listeners to this show. Have, heard me talk a lot about Christian nationalism and, and how it's um, intersecting with the, you know, the vision of religious diversity in this country and other kinds of diversity. Uh, I'm curious how that factors into your work. So, you know, I think we're very much on the same page. Um, what I hope to do while I'm here is network and coalition build, that the, uh, the argument for uh, the rise of religious nationalism in the United States, known as white Christian nationalism, or globally by lots of other names, needs us to bring our powers together, the human power of us learning how to stand uh, up. And, and TriFaith was built on solidarity. How do we learn how to show up for each other? Um, we are here at the Parliament of World Religions to find new partners to stand shoulder to shoulder with. I love that. And, you know, Interfaith Alliance and Tri-Faith Initiative are going to have lots of things to do together. We're very excited. Wendy Goldberg is the director of the Tri-Faith Initiative. Wendy, thank you so much for being with me on this state of belief. Thank you. I am here with Joshua Seftel. Oscar-nominated filmmaker who is screening Stranger at the Gate here at Parliament of the Religions. Joshua, welcome to the State of Belief. Hi, Paul. Good to be here. So, Joshua, you are a filmmaker who is inspired by your faith, by your beliefs, by your background to tell stories that actually aren't necessarily about your own community but are about other communities and how they intersect with the world. T tell us a little bit about your background, how you got into filmmaking, and the particular storytelling that you've dedicated so much of your life to. Sure. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, I, um, I grew up in upstate New York, and I was, grew up Jewish in a, a community that didn't have a lot of Jews. So I was always, you know, on the outside a little bit. And growing up, 
my father was a physician and he would entertain people at our house a lot and we had this one room in our house that was uh, as kids we weren't even allowed to go in there it was the special room for entertaining and it had a yellow shag carpet that um, my mom had a rake that she would use to rake the carpet to make sure it was fluffy and looked good and occasionally you know maybe once a month once every two months we'd have people over and it was usually the um the fellow physicians of my dad's colleagues and I would look in the room on those nights and it was filled with people from all over the world because they were the physicians and doctors who had come to the United States uh, to care for people and so we you know you look in that room you'd see people in saris you'd see people uh, wearing hijab Uh, you'd see people of all different shades and religions and that's what I grew up with, you know, uh, uh, being around those people. And there was a, a warmth. And, um, and my, I think my parents really liked me to see that. Meanwhile, in that same room, uh, probably around when I was about nine, one morning I woke up and, and I looked in that room and there was a rock in the middle of the floor, about the size of a brick. And on the floor was glass shattered all over and the bay window in that room had been shattered someone threw a rock through a window and I immediately knew what it was you know it was anti-semitism and uh you know I'd been facing it at school kids calling me names um kids throwing pennies at me um to see if I would bend over to pick them up you know to prove that to them to prove that Jews are cheap uh, and so um, I had these two things going on at the same time in this room, you know, this exposure to all this, you know, this diversity and then this exposure to adversity and discrimination. And um, and those two things, I think, came together in the work I do um, where I'm really interested in telling stories that stand up to um and shatter stereotypes. Um, and they don't have to necessarily be stories about being Jewish. They, they're stories about being Muslim. They're stories about being an immigrant. Uh, there's all kinds of stories that I think are important to tell, that tell, tell the stories of underdogs in, in our society. That's, that's what I'm drawn to. It's in, such a, a powerful story and such a vivid story. Um, you specifically have had this uh, series of movies about Muslims. Do I have that right? Like that you had a series of, uh, and I, I find that amazing. Has there been ever any tension or where Muslim communities are like, who are you and why are you t- telling our stories? I mean, I, I, have has that been a, a hurdle you had to get over? Uh, by now, my guess is that, you know, you're, you're known for this series, but have there ever been moments where there was suspicion that uh, wasn't because of you, but just because of the, the kind of the water we're swimming in right now? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so I've done this series. It's called Secret Life of Muslims. Uh, almost all the films are on YouTube. Actually, all of them are on YouTube. We've made 25 of them. The most recent one is called Stranger at the Gate, which we're showing here at the Parliament. And it is... Um, a story about a Muslim community in Muncie, Indiana, 
that uh, was met with a bomb threat, and it's about how they handled that situation. And uh, it's it was nominated for 2023 Oscar, and um, and and so that was the 25th film. Um, have the question about am I the person who should be t- or should be telling these stories? I can't really answer that question. Uh, it's not up to me. They're, these are stories I'm drawn to. They're stories I think are important. Um, they tend to be stories where I, I don't see a line of people um, lining up to tell them. Uh, I've been first in line on, on most of them, on all of them. Uh, but um, I'm going to keep doing it until people tell me to stop. Uh, I feel like they're, they're meaningful, and I hope that they have an impact on our society. What do you see as um, the trajectory? You've been doing this series... And how have you seen the experience of Muslims changing, the experience of Jews changing in America? How do you, what's the, where are we at with um, religion in America right now? Um, you know, it seems like I, t- I had a chance to talk to uh, Representative Jamie Raskin, and he says we, like, we have these two different visions that are in a race in America to figure out, like, who's going to win? And uh, I'm just curious what you're seeing as someone who is really on the ground with stories. Um, how, how, are you, how are you interpreting this moment we're in in American history and religious pluralism? Well, what, from what you're saying about what Representative Raskin um, described, that sounds very accurate to me because I've seen what seem to be improvements. I mean, we've been making these films since 2015, and I've been listening to these stories and reporting on them. And it, it seems like in some ways uh, the Islamophobia, and hatred of Muslim people in this country has improved a bit. I feel like I, I, I've seen that a bit. But at the same time, you hear that hate crimes are on the rise and anti-Semitism is on the rise and uh, you know hate toward Muslims is on the rise. So... I do think there's a push and a pull, and I I feel like it's, I always think of it as whack-a-mole, you know, it's like, it's never going to go away, no matter how many films we make, no matter how much we change the way we think, there's always going to be um, discrimination and hate crimes, and we just have to find ways to stamp it out and keep trying to educate people so that... um, we keep moving in the right direction. Yeah, I, I think that that's right. I, I think whack-a-mole feels, um, it, it feels like how it feels. And yet, it, you know, if I think about there, there can be progress. So I, ho- I hope that we, we also, like, remember that things can get better. But it doesn't mean that nothing is permanent. And it has to continually get effort. And uh, so Malala was involved in this latest film. How did that happen? And what, you know, what was the, what was her uh, involvement in this, in your film, uh, Stranger at the Gate? Sure. Yeah. Malala was our executive producer on Stranger at the Gate. And we, when we were um, making the film, we realized that we had this a story that was powerful, that, that could be, um, that could move the needle, maybe, you know, that's our, that was our hope, because it's a story about a um, white supremacist who hates Muslims, who goes through a change, and he comes out the other side, and be, and actually, spoiler, spoiler alert, he converts to Islam from being 
someone who's filled with hate toward Muslims. And and he was going to bomb this mosque. I mean, that was like, it, I mean, I, I don't think it's a spoiler alert because it is like, you know, I mean, actually it's makes for me, it makes the film more intriguing to know kind of what's at stake. I mean, everything was at stake here. And, and some, and it is like, I mean, if, if, if for nothing else, it's like a, it's a story of transformation that is um, just just reminds us that transformation is possible. So it's like whack-a-mole is maybe the wrong metaphor. Like, I don't know how, what it would be transformation a mole or whatever. But, you know, I mean, like, this is like, it's incredible. And it, it comes from exposure. It comes from, um, you know, a certain attitude and, and principle of how they greeted him that, forced him to reckon so so um and now like you guys speak right or he i mean he's like he's open about this about what transformation he's gone through and the mosque has gone through that's right yeah he so the 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 man who was planning to bomb the mosque is now an activist and he goes around and speaks and so that was the subject of the the film and when we when we showed it to malala because we we were looking for an ambassador. We were looking for someone who would help us amplify the message. And we on the at the top of our list was Malala. So we were able to get the film to her. And when she saw it, she reached out and said, "I'm very interested in being involved." And that was that was so from there, she joined us and um, has been really supportive of the film and has, um, done many screenings with us where she's spoken and um, it's just been incredible the film since she came on board the film has had over two million views is is this available just to for people to go to like tell our listeners how people can find the film and my guess is that there's ways that they could use this film in whatever religious congregation or, or you know, a civic organization our listeners are, um, are involved with. What, what are ways that people can interact with this film? That's right. So you can watch the film on YouTube. It's free uh, by design. And uh, if you want to screen at an event, you can, we have a website, um, strangerthegate.com, and uh, you can um, come to the website and you can contact us about events and things like that so we can arrange arrange for that joshua seftel oscar nominated filmmaker of a stranger at the gate here at parliament of the religions thank you for being with me on the state of belief thanks paul okay i am outside actually on a beautiful day outside a big white tent um, and people are streaming in from every background, uh, every religion, every race, coming from the Parliament of the World's Religions to Langar. I am a Sukhbir Singh. I'm the event organizer on behalf of my chairman, Pai Mahinda Singh. And we have come all the way from uh, London, uh, Birmingham, UK, to serve free food, which we call Langar. This is on, on behalf of not only the Sikh community in uh, UK, it's also on all the Sikh communities from North America. We have come to amalgamated and we have come together to serve langar free of charge, free food to all the delegates of the Parliament World Religions. 
It's incredible. I remember the first time I was at a parliament in, in Barcelona, Spain, and uh, I heard about this, uh, you know, that the six had a, had a lunch. I was like, how do I get invited? And people were like, it's not an invitation thing. Anybody can go. And I couldn't believe it. So this is what is the principle behind Langar um, that actually is part of the Sikh uh, tradition? Yes, uh, before I get into, I was at Parliament. In fact, my chairman sent me to organize that event also. So uh, we arranged that. The principle behind Langar is a very, sh- very short story. Guru Nanak, the founder of the Sikh faith, his father gave him 20 rupees at that time. It was a lot of money, millions of dollars to start a business. Because this is why people survived having the small businesses. And then Guru Nanak uh, went to look for a business. Then on the way, he saw some people... Uh, some holy people who were hungry, who didn't have good clothes on. See, he spent all the money to buy food provisions and feed them and give them good clothes. From that day, the uh, the institution of langar was born. So the langar, the meaning of langar is that the first thing that we as individuals should do, as families, as community, as governments, is to make sure that there's no one goes hungry in the world. Now, governments are not doing their job. A lot of people are going, a lot of people are dying without they having got food. This this is not acceptable. This langar is just a start that one community can uh, feed everybody else coming together. And I will say this is not the sick langar because a lot of people, the delegates, they have come and given cash donations. So we are buying fruit with that donations. This is a langar is from everybody for everybody. If the government start doing that, there will be no one hungry. It's, it's, a, it's a shame people are dying hungry from because they haven't got enough food. Uh, is, what is the meaning of the word langar? Does langar it have? Is a, it's a, it stems from Persia. It's a, background is like a, a Persian word, and it means provide. Uh, the literal meaning is anchor, and we are supposed to provide food and clothing for whoever comes into our vicinity. I, I remember seeing um, people at the Langar in Barcelona moving their lips while they were serving. And uh, someone explained to me that this was part of it, that this is also an yeah. act of prayer. See, the, the, the Langar begins with earning honest living, first of all. Now, earning, we do all sorts of occupations, but during our occupation, that uh, the money that we earn only becomes good if we are reciting the name of God. Now we recite Vaiguru, Vaiguru and all communities have their own word for God. It is okay. There's no, it's not, not that. So when we recite those, uh, this must be earning, honest earnings uh, from which we buy provisions and while we make food, we recite the name of the God. It is the, the element of God which uh, becomes unlimited. If I feed or you feed, Okay, it'll be somewhat limited, but once we add the island of God into it, the uh, the, the earning of the money, uh, cooking of the food, and add the element of God, it becomes unlimited. Yeah. Whether hundred people turn up or ten thousand, we didn't. You know, it's very organized. If you organize your family's wedding or something, to organize even for hundred people, you know, you got to be very very spare. Here, we don't know where the money is coming. We don't know where the provisions are coming. Out. Uh, whether 5,000 people come, 10,000 people, the same to us because the element of God is now in Langar and He is doing the work. Uh-huh. Do you have any sense of how many people? It could, I mean, it's, people are streaming in here. I wish you, my listeners, could yeah, hear because it's. 7,000 people have registered for the parliament. I think uh, maybe uh, 10% might be busy in other sessions, 
I think it was 6,500 would come get. And when they say, the West people say, no, no such thing as a free, uh, free lunch, there is something like free lunch. <laughs> Guru Nanak provided that there's something like a free, this is a free lunch it's for a, everybody. Well, it's a free lunch, uh, but with a great deal of uh, devotion and love, and yes, I thank you so much for it. this time what we are doing, we are inviting other communities to sing the praises of the Lord while we are eating. Because everybody has got their own devotion to God. We want to welcome that. Yeah, it's beautiful. I can hear a drumming in the background. Yeah. And, uh, and it's just a beautiful, peaceful scene coming in and out. So thank you so much. Uh, thank you. You must have langar now. Thank you. <laughs> the address you're about to hear was given at the plenary session that was addressing the crisis of authoritarian that is rising around the world. I was in front of thousands of individuals of all different backgrounds, faith, traditions, races, nationalities, who are coming together to figure out what we can do as a community to fight back against authoritarianism in all its forms. It is an honor to be with you here at the Parliament of the World's Religions. I come to this podium raised in an interfaith family led by an interfaith heart, and having spent the last 25 years serving as a Christian minister, largely in interfaith settings and promoting interfaith work. As I look out at this amazing gathering of beautiful souls, I have to ask, what are we doing here? Each of us comes guided by our own interests, to learn more about other traditions, to build bridges, to find common ground, to share the richness of our spiritual practice. These are some of the central activities of the interfaith work since the parliament began. However, when I look at all of you who come not only as yourselves, but also represent hundreds, thousands perhaps even millions of others in places both far and near, I see power. The power of people. The power of ideas. The organizational, spiritual, and moral power of religion that the world needs to meet the crisis that we face. And what is that crisis? Across the world, authoritarian movements are gaining control. They are headed by would-be dictators. But we must also acknowledge that too often they are legitimized and sanctified by religious leaders consolidating their own power for their own tradition and restricting the religious, social, and political liberty of those who are different and therefore labeled in their own country as the other, with second and third class status. Our particular threat in the United States is white Christian nationalism that claims the mantle of both faith and flag, but at its core is a crusade for power that betrays our nation and degrades my faith. They are guided by a Christian and white supremacist narrative that defines who can be a true American, a true Christian, 
and who really belongs in the country. As we are holding this parliament, Christian nationalists are attacking churches that do not agree with them. They are attempting to rewrite our history. They are banning our books. They are restricting voting and women's rights and targeting minority faiths. I come to this parliament with a particular vantage point. As a gay man who is married to my husband and we have two precious children, my own family is a target. As books about LGBT people are among those that are most banned in this nation, not saying gay has become the law of the land in Florida. And there are millions of my fellow Americans who do not believe I should be married or have children or even exist. Recently, the Supreme Court in the United States has ruled that people who provide services to the public can turn my family away. And here's the kicker. People point to the religious beliefs for the inspiration and rationale behind these attacks. Worse, there are right-wing activists from different faiths who have traditionally attacked one another who are now banding together to target me and my family and other LGBTQ people under the misuse of the principles of religious freedom. To which I respond, whose religion and whose freedom? So I ask again, what are we doing here? To do interfaith work is by definition to perform the radical act of refusing to insist on our own way, even as our own traditions might invite us to such an impulse. Instead, the very genesis of the interfaith movement is to publicly declare that we will refrain from acting on those dogmas within each of our traditions that continues to provide a rationale to hate and to murder one another. The real difference among religions today is not between traditions, but how we understand our religion's mandate to act in the world. Does our tradition inspire us to celebrate or to discriminate? Do our beliefs prompt us to liberate or subjugate? Will we interpret our scripture and teachings in such a way that our religion is a bridge or a bludgeon? What are we doing here? Parliament of the world's religions, we are here to love one another and to love the world. We are here to collectively and politically and publicly say no to the fascists of our time, and we will be guided by the ethos and the tactic of love that has guided so many great movements in the past. Gandhi, King, Mandela, Malala, and so many others across the world, each of them tapped into the deepest wells of the spirit and practiced a powerful, nonviolent resistance against the forces of cruelty and tyranny. Parliament of the world's religions let us join together in a love that refuses to hate, 
a love that diffuses lies, a love that targets no one, a love that casts a vision for a future in which everyone has dignity and worth. Parliament of the world's religions, let us join together with a love that resists the fist with an open hand that reaches to our neighbors for their hand and creates an ever-expanding circle of diverse people, faiths, races, backgrounds, and makes the irresistible invitation, join us. Together we will be powerful. Together we will meet this global crisis of authoritarianism. Together we will be guided by love. Together we will win. Thank you so much. And that's all the time we have for this week's State of Belief. This is very important as part of our new partnership with Religion News Service for distribution and expansion of this show. The podcast feed you're listening to right now will be discontinued soon. Please be sure to subscribe to the new and improved podcast called The State of Belief at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform or at stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. Subscribe to The State of Belief today. We need your help keeping State of Belief going. I hope you'll consider being a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And you can also be part of making sure informative and encouraging voices like these are heard by sharing this program with family and friends. Let's get more people listening and more people taking part, both on and off the air. And join the conversation. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at State of Belief and share State of Belief with the people in your life. The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Religion News Service or Religion News Foundation. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week. I can't wait. Until then, I'm Paul Rauschenbusch on State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet.